Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Can't blame Southwest for this one. The lead starts right now. System meltdown. The FAA tries to get flights back on track after a pilot notification system failed colossally. What caused the massive outage that led to massive delays and cancellations? And the dangers of TikTok beyond suspicions that the Chinese government can use it to access your data. This time, how according to one study, the addictive content puts teenagers, particularly teen girls, at risk of depression. But first... Republicans rolling out committee chairmanships and assignments with some interesting and provocative picks, while notorious Congressman George Santos has denied his first choice for a committee seat, while his fellow Republicans begin to call for his resignation. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead. Major decisions underway right now on Capitol Hill. Republican lawmakers say their party's steering committee is meeting today to decide which Republican members will sit on the most powerful committees in the House of Representatives. And it's giving us all some new insights into the deals that now Speaker Kevin McCarthy may have made with his hardline opponents to get their votes and secure the gavel. As four of the previous holdouts who voted against McCarthy on ballot after ballot today scored coveted committee seats. Also on Capitol Hill today, the new leader of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee is setting his sights on bank accounts of members of the Biden family accused of cashing in on their last name. We'll have more on that in just a moment. We're going to start with CNN's chief congressional correspondent, Manu Raju, who has a closer look at McCarthy's strategy as he chooses which Republicans to reward. House Republicans behind the scenes crafting their strategy for the next two years and working to implement the deals Kevin McCarthy had to cut to win the speakership. To win over his holdouts, McCarthy agreed to name more members of the Hard Right Freedom Caucus to serve on the most powerful committees in the House, giving them more sway to shape their party's agenda, including two who flipped to the GOP leader, Andrew Clyde and Michael Cloud, to serve on the committee that funds the government. We're looking at, you know, the different ideas and philosophies and ideologies and make sure that as the bills come out of committee, they already reflect the entire conference. McCarthy planning to reward some of his allies, including firebrand Marjorie Taylor Greene, who lost her spots in 2021 when Democrats punished her over her past controversies. Has he given you that assurance to be on the oversight committee? Well, I have assurance to be on committees, but I haven't been promised any committees. As McCarthy has already selected his committee chairman and preps an aggressive investigative agenda, his biggest test could be navigating another key aspect of his deal, funding the federal government and raising the national debt limit. That is going to mean some tension with the Senate. That is going to mean some tension with the other party. But I'm not concerned about the tension. What I'm concerned about is a country that is, uh, has been engaged in financial uh, irresponsibility for so long. 
According to a slide obtained by CNN, McCarthy's deal says the House GOP will reject any negotiations with the Senate on funding the government if the levels are above GOP demands. And saying the House will not agree to raise the debt limit to avoid a debt default without commensurate fiscal reforms setting up a major showdown with the White House. And if you're going to ask for an increase in the limit, at some point in time, you've got to sit down and say, why are we hitting the limit? All as GOP leaders grappling with a major headache. Freshman Congressman George Santos facing GOP calls back home to resign after lying about his past. But if he steps aside, it would set up a special election in a New York district that Democrats could flip. McCarthy, for now, siding with Santos. But right now, the voters have, have a voice in the decisions, not where people pick and choose based upon what somebody's pressing on. Would you? Uh, so he will continue to serve. Uh, George Santos wanted a seat on the House Financial Services Committee, but he did not get that by McCarthy indicating that he would get other lower-profile committees. Now, we're also learning, Jake, about some of the rewards he gave to members of the House Freedom Caucus. That is that hard-right group. We're learning that 16 members of the House Freedom Caucus got spots on four of the top committees. That includes six of the holdouts who initially voted against McCarthy, but now they're being reordered for seats on the Appropriations Committee, Financial Services Committee, as the other major panels will also be decided in the days ahead, and they will be represented there as well. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Also in our politics lead today, the new chairman of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee wants some of the financial records of members of the Biden family. Congressman James Comer of Kentucky asked the Treasury Department to turn over bank information for President Biden's son, Hunter, as well as the president's businessman brother, James, known as Jimmy, and several other family associates who are accused of profiting off the Biden family name and connections. As CNN's Sarah Murray reports for us now, Republicans claim some of those deals could potentially compromise President Biden. House Oversight Chair James Comer wasting no time launching his long-promised probe into the Biden family. I want to be clear. This is an investigation of Joe Biden, and that's where the committee will focus. Comer demanding financial records from the U.S. Treasury Department and public testimony from former Twitter executives after the social media company temporarily suppressed a story about Hunter Biden and his laptop in 2020. The letters call for bank activity reports for President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, the president's brother, James Biden, and a handful of associates and related companies, as well as any communications between the White House and Treasury. The Kentucky Republican trying to make the case that foreign business deals by Biden family members could compromise the president. What is the Biden family business. I would argue it's influence peddling. And Joe Biden was not truthful with the American people during the presidential campaign when he said he had no idea what his family was involved in. But that is merely an allegation, one the newly minted chairman has yet to prove. And Joe Biden has denied playing any role in his son's overseas deals. I've never spoken to my son about the overseas deals. The bank reports known as suspicious activity reports Comer is clamoring for don't necessarily indicate wrongdoing. Financial institutions file millions annually, and few lead to law enforcement inquiries. A White House spokesman dismissed the GOP moves as political stunts driven by the most extreme MAGA members of their caucus in an effort to get attention on Fox News. 
As Republicans flex their new investigative powers, they've also established a new select subcommittee focused on the, quote, weaponization of the federal government, and particularly DOJ and the FBI. There's going to be a select subcommittee that's going to focus on that. We've had 14 whistleblowers come talk to us about how political that place has become. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy pointing to the panel as a vehicle to delve into the classified records recently found in President Joe Biden's former private office. Why does his Department of Justice treat people differently? Every time we find something that comes out before the election dealing with Biden's family, it's pushed under the rug. It's called a lie. Now, Jake, we are still waiting to see who else is going to end up on the Oversight Committee as well as the Subcommittee on the Weaponization of Government. But we are hearing today from Jamie Raskin, who is the top Democrat on oversight. He's slamming James Comer already for pursuing debunked and hyperpartisan conspiracy theories on the Biden family. Jake. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Uh, Ellie, let's start with this new select committee designed to investigate what they call, the Republicans call, the weaponization of the Justice Department and the FBI. Uh, Is this a legitimate line of inquiry, do you think? No, I I don't think it is, Jake. I reject the underlying premise that DOJ has been weaponized. First of all, is DOJ investigating Donald Trump? You bet. Has Donald Trump engaged in conduct that requires investigation? Absolutely. And by the way, you know who else DOJ is investigating right now? Joe Biden. You know who else they're investigating right now? Hunter Biden. Now, look, the attorney general is a political appointee of the president. But when he gets vetted through the Senate, the main thing that he's being vetted for is, will this person maintain the political independence? And I think it's really important to keep in mind, the vast, vast majority of people who work at DOJ do not care about politics. I was there for Republican administration, Democratic administration. It made zero difference whatsoever into the way we went about our cases. So I reject the basic premise that there's been a weaponization to begin with. What happens if Attorney General Garland or others at the Justice Department, including the FBI, just refuse to cooperate with this committee? First of all, I think Merrick Garland can, should, and must refuse to cooperate if he is asked about specific pending criminal investigations. If he crosses that line, he will jeopardize those those investigations and he will jeopardize the reputation of the people who are being investigated. They're entitled to a presumption of innocence. If Merrick Garland refuses, then this new committee can try to hold him in contempt of Congress. The committee would have to vote for it. Then the full House would have to vote for it. The catch is it would then go where for prosecution? To the Department of Justice. So it's only going to be symbolic. And Jake, there's some history here. We managed to go 230 some years in our history without ever having an attorney general held in contempt. However, Eric Holder was then held in contempt in 2012. Bill Barr was held in contempt in 2019. Of course, they were never prosecuted. But we'll see if Merrick Garland is willing to have his name added to that list. How much do you think, I mean, do you not think that there's anything worth investigating here when it comes to potentially shady deals or ethically questionable ones by Hunter Biden, by Jimmy Biden, who's made a lot of money, um, you know, while his brother was becoming a very prominent politician? Or do you think it's just purely politics? No, I think there's absolutely a good faith basis to investigate, but I think the investigations need to be kept separate. First of all, DOJ has every right to investigate Hunter Biden for his business dealings. They are doing that. They've been doing that for several years now. That case is ongoing in the District of Delaware. Congress is free to investigate as well. I believe in broad oversight powers of Congress. But what they're not free to do, in my view, and I think constitutionally in terms of separation of powers, is drag in the attorney general and say, Okay, Mr. Attorney General, where are you in your criminal investigation 
open up your books. Tell us about that. That, I think, is a line that can't be crossed. All right, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the request from the top Republican and Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee after classified documents were found at Joe Biden's private office, plus a temporary break in the rain out west. But the damage is mounting. The moment one West Coaster said felt like an earthquake during the storm. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead. Attorney General Merrick Garland is now weighing whether to open a full-blown criminal investigation after 10 classified documents were inappropriately transferred and then found in a private office used by Joe Biden after he served as vice president and before he launched his 2020 campaign. We do not know who had access to these classified documents for the six years they were in that private office. CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez joins me now live. Evan, what do we know about any next steps here? Well, Jake, you know, one of the big questions that hangs over this is whether the attorney general should uh, order a full scale investigation, a full blown investigation of this uh, now that the initial the preliminary work uh, review was being uh, that was being done by John Lausch, the the, the Trump appointee uh, U.S. attorney in Chicago. Now that has been completed. Uh, uh, Lausch has briefed the attorney general and the leadership at DOJ. And so now the attorney general has to decide what are the next steps. And those, of course, could include just launching a new uh, full-scale investigation. It also could be uh, to whether to to uh, appoint a special counsel to look at this, Jake. And you know, of course, there's already a special counsel looking at uh, the handling of uh, classified documents uh, and uh, investigations of Donald Trump. There's still John Durham out there. We're starting to joke that the Department of Justice is the Department of Special Counsels. So this is something, obviously, that is a very big concern for the White House. They do not want to see a special counsel in this. They'd like to see this wrapped up uh, instead. And Evan, the, the leaders of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Democrat and Republican, have sent a letter to the Director of National Intelligence asking for access to these documents, a bipartisan request. Is that normal procedure? It is normal procedure. I mean, you certainly saw that, I think, on the, on the Senate side during the Trump administration. You saw an effort to try to be bipartisan in investigating the handling of things like this. Um, what you often see, uh, Jake, a different story in the House. And what you might see here is that the intelligence community is involved with this effort to see whether any sources and methods may have been uh, exposed or damaged as a result of the handling of these documents. Of course, Jake, you know that, uh, you know, putting these documents in a place where they weren't necessarily up to the standards of security uh, at a private office here in Washington uh, is something that is very, very concerning to the intelligence community. So before this is wrapped up, the FBI, the intelligence community will want to know who might have had access to those offices. Also, are there any documents anywhere else that Joe Biden has not accounted for? All right, Evan Perez, thank you so much. CNN's Caitlin Collins is here to discuss. And Caitlin, how does the Biden White House see all of this, especially the possibility you just heard Evan discuss of, of a new special counsel specifically about him? Well, they definitely don't want a special counsel. They don't think it warrants a special counsel. They have been working, you know, basically 24-7 since this came out to draw the distinction between what's happening in the Trump case and what is happening here, mainly in the number of documents and also in the efforts that Trump took to resist the efforts to get them back in the possession of the federal government. Now, as Evan noted, there is really important. We don't fully know what it is when it comes to the numbers and what the content uh, is of these documents when it comes to President Biden and what he took when he left office. And so 
The White House is working to draw that distinction, but it's not up to them if they have a special counsel. It's up to the attorney general. And you can already see he is trying to make clear that this is not political by putting the U.S. attorney appointed by Trump in charge of this review. And so it's still a big question even for them if this does ultimately lead to a special counsel. It would be a headache for them because it would kind of make it look more similar to the Trump case because they would both have a special counsel. And of course, uh, Republicans are, are seizing on this. They're, they're, they're criticizing uh, Biden uh, for this. But you also spoke with, with a Democrat, Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill uh, of New Jersey. Uh, she also had some concerns. Let's play that. Does it concern you that this happened, though, the day before the midterm elections? That's when these documents were found and we're just now finding out about it? It, it does. I, I'd have to look as to, you know, when they were discovered and why we're just finding out now. Um, that does concern me. This has to be a very transparent process to ensure, again, that we're handling the classified secrets of this country very, very carefully. Again, this is different in many important ways than the Trump documents case. But do you think it's also a bigger problem than the White House is publicly acknowledging? Well, it's definitely different. And we will make that clear day in and day out of the, what it is here and not you know, allow people to muddy the waters on this. But when it comes to the White House, there are a lot of questions that we still don't know. And the timing there is a big one, which is that these were discovered the day before the midterm elections. Obviously, it would have been a significant story. We don't know the outcome or the effect it would have had, if any, on the midterm elections. But it is definitely something that people are, are drawing a question about. And the White House hasn't fully answered why it wasn't publicly disclosed. Uh, of course, whether or not there are more documents in more locations. You know, are they going to carry out any kind of audit to see any other locations that President Biden has in his house in Wilmington, his one um, at home, if there are more documents? Those are the questions that the White House hasn't answered. And I think that's why you're seeing Democrats who have said the Trump case draws big questions about the handling of classified information and what could potentially be out there in unsecure locations. That's the big question that they have. Also, who had access to those documents for six years in, yeah. in that office here in D.C.? And you have some new reporting on how uh, President Trump and his team view this. They view it as huge for them. They think it's going to benefit them in a big way. We don't actually know that. This is just their point of view because, of course, legally they're dealing with the fact that Trump fought so hard when it came to the Justice Department trying to get, and the federal government trying to get these documents back in their possession, that it led to an FBI search of his home. But they believe that it helps because they've been making this argument that it's easier than people think for former presidents and former leaders to take these classified materials with them when they go. Now, the numbers here are very different, <laughs> right. obviously. Ten documents versus several boxes worth. And not just that, that they said, hey, you've got these documents from President Trump. We need them back. And he resisted those efforts. And then even after they went and got them, remember, we reported there were more documents that Trump had found at another location. So that's the distinction that is drawn there that obviously is clear to everyone else. But Trump's team does believe that this helps them. Politically, they believe it helps them. Legally, they think it may help them. We don't ultimately know that it will, but they do believe that this is something that is beneficial to their case. Yeah, well, who knows? We'll see. What, we'll see. It's obviously not the exact same thing. Of course. Very, very different. Caitlin Collins, appreciate it. Next, an influential Republican facing sexual assault allegations and new text messages that may corroborate the claim. Stay with us. Our politics lead now, CNN has obtained some a new contemporaneous evidence that would seem to back the sexual assault allegations made by a male Republican strategist. 
Last week, you might recall Matt Schlapp, a prominent and influential Republican activist and lobbyist with close ties to Donald Trump, was accused of unwanted groping and fondling by that male staffer who at the time worked for the campaign of Herschel Walker. Walker, of course, the Republican who lost that hotly contested U.S. Senate race in Georgia. Matt Schlapp chairs the American Conservative Union, best known perhaps for hosting the annual CPAC conference. Schlapp also works for the lobbying firm Cove Strategies. Schlapp was also very active pushing Trump's 2020 election lies. His wife, Mercedes Schlapp, was communications director in Donald Trump's White House for some time. Let's bring in CNN's Jamie Gingo. Jamie, first the allegations. What is this male staffer alleging happened? Right. So, so let's walk through this. The Republican uh, strategist alleges that Matt Schlapp made unwanted sexual advances, that he groped and fondled his groin as the staffer drove Schlapp on October 19th from two bars they had been at back to Schlapp's hotel. Uh, just to be clear, the staffer had been assigned to drive Schlapp during events there. Uh, the staffer said that when they got to the hotel, Schlapp invited him up to his hotel room. The staffer declined, and then uh, a few hours later, he informed uh, top campaign officials. At, at the Walker campaign. At the Walker campaign. Schlapp, through his attorney, denies the claim. Uh, this is the statement, the attack is false, and Mr. Schlapp denies any improper behavior. We are evaluating legal options for response. But, and Jamie, you, you have obtained some text messages sent between parties involved. To, what, what do they reveal? So CNN is reviews text messages, phone records, uh, that show that the staffer reached out to friends and acquaintances in real time that night. Back in October. Back in October, that same night, the texts reveal uh, that he was upset. There is also, there are video recordings he actually made that we've also reviewed in which he memorializes what happened. In addition, we spoke to top campaign officials who spoke to the staffer in real time and describe him as being, quote, angry and mortified. And they instructed the staffer not to drive Schlapp the next day. They provided him with a car service. Uh, there is an exchange between the staffer and Schlapp that night, which I want to show you. The staffer texts Schlapp to inform him he's not going to drive him. He says, I did want to say I was uncomfortable with what happened last night. The campaign does have a driver who's available to get you to Macon and back to the airport. According to phone records we've reviewed, Schlapp tries to call him a couple of times. Then a few hours later, he sends the following text message. If you could see it in your heart to call me at the end of the day, I would appreciate it. If not, I wish you luck on the campaign and hope you keep up the good work. We also obtained a brand new text message exchange that's being made public for the first time. This is the staffer texted a friend who's in politics, really sort of telling him what happened, allegedly, but also asking for advice about how to tell the campaign. So the staffer tells this political friend, quote, he's pissed I didn't follow him to his hotel room. Then later, the friend responds, I'm so sorry, man. What an effing creep. And then a little later, the staffer texts, I just don't know how to say it to my superiors that their surrogate fondled my junk without my consent. Hmm. 
Why is he going public with this now three months later? And did he report this assault to the police? So he says that he didn't want to come forward initially because the the election was a couple of weeks away. He didn't want it to be a distraction. He says he's coming forward now because he doesn't want someone else to be victimized. I do want to say that the Walker campaign, and the staffer says this, was completely supportive during this process, offered him a lawyer, offered if he wanted to go to the police. Um, He's leaving his legal options open for now. I do want to add, we should mention that the American Conservative Union put out a statement saying the board of directors is standing behind Schlapp and his leadership. All right. Jamie Gengel, thanks so much. Appreciate it. A historic string of storms, at least 17 lives lost. Neighborhoods look like lake sewage mixed in with floodwater. And to make matters worse, more rain is on the way. We're going out west. Stay with us. In our national lead, parts of California are getting something of a break today from the heavy downpour that has left widespread damage, allowing some communities to begin the cleanup process. Well, other communities are still dealing with dangerous conditions, but as CNN's Veronica Miracle reports for us now, the recent parade of storms that have claimed the lives of at least 17 people is set to make another round. The cleanup from a series of deadly, unprecedented storms continues across California. It felt like an earthquake. The dog came running in. We could hear glass shattering and water pouring. Heavy rainfall triggered flash flooding. So it was shocking. It was really, it was unreal seeing that water just come surging up. In San Francisco, lightning and hailstorms, trees falling, power lines down. I saw sparks everywhere around me. At least 17 people have died in the storms. That's more than we've lost in the last two years of wildfires. Uh, so this is a very significant emergency. If we flood more and more, it's not manageable. And in San Francisco and other parts of Northern California, the rain continues to fall. Some 5 million people are under flood watches in Northern California, while parts of Central and Southern California getting a much needed break from downpours, flooding and mudslides. The ground is so wet and the water's pooling up. I would say this is like the worst winter I've seen in this short amount of time. In the Sierra, one to three feet of snow has blanketed several ski resorts in the last several days. The snow closed a major thoroughfare in the state overnight, delaying shipments as trucks waited to pass. We've got to get this stuff where it's supposed to go. The snowpack offers some relief to lingering drought conditions in California. Our streams and rivers and creeks are pretty pretty high. And the rainfall is filling up some of the state's largest reservoirs. We've never really seen anything like this. The state has been experiencing drought for the last four years, and now we have storm upon storm. The benefit of so much rain falling so fast. We wanted rain, we got it. Six storms in the last two weeks, and there's more to come. After almost 20 inches of rain in the last three days, even Southern California's brief respite from the deluge will soon end. Another round of heavy rainfall is due this weekend, with two more major storms to follow. And officials are warning people to stay home if at all possible when these conditions arise so that you can avoid situations just like this landslide right here. Back to you, Jake. All right, Veronica Miracle in San Francisco. Thanks so much. Turning now to the ongoing investigation into the suspicious disappearance of a Massachusetts mother where police continue to look into the bloodied evidence found so far. 
Law enforcement sources say a hacksaw, torn up cloth, and apparent bloodstains were found at a trash transfer site. And they say that might be linked to 39-year-old Anna Walsh's disappearance. CNN's Jason Carroll is in the coastal town of Cohasset, Massachusetts, where Walsh is from. And Jason, what more do we know about Anna Walsh's husband, Brian Walsh, uh, who's been arrested for misleading investigators about this case? Well, yes, Jake. It turns out before this case that you were talking about, even before the case involving Walsh, where he ended up pleading guilty to selling those four, uh, those uh, fake Warhols, there were allegations uh, going back years ago uh, that he stole hundreds of thousands of dollars from his father. This was uncovered in court documents that we found, where he was also referred to as a, quote, sociopath. Again, these are court documents which show that he was estranged from his father for, for many, many years, and that's basically because of uh, some sort of a legal entanglement that he had got into with them over a real estate deal. It got so bad at one point that his father actually, again, according to these court documents, cut Walsh out of his will. His father ended up dying back in 2018, but that didn't stop Walsh, even though he was cut out from the will, from contesting the will, trying to go after his estate. That was unsuccessful. A judge did not uh, side with him. But one of the points that we found here in all of these court documents that really stood out, Jake, and I want to read part of it to you, this comes from a friend of uh, Walsh's father that said this about Brian. He said the following, Brian is not only a sociopath, but also a very angry and physically violent person. I want nothing to do with him. That was back in 2019. Very chilling words, considering now... Walsh's wife is missing. And Jake. can we expect any changes or any adjustment to the charges against Brian Walsh? I think that's the big question that a lot of people out here are asking, and that is really going to depend upon uh, some of those items that were found at that trash facility that you talked about, the hacksaw, the cloth material, which appeared to have blood on it. They're going to be running those tests, see if they can make a connection between what they found there and what uh, someone family, if they can make some of those connections, then legal experts that we talk to say expect some sort of charges to be coming in terms of timing. Hard to say at this point. All right, Jason Carroll in Cohasset, Massachusetts. Thanks so much. Let's turn now to our world lead. Russia has appointed a new commander to lead its war in Ukraine. This is the second new leader for Putin's war in just three months. A move so significant, former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton tells me it would be as if we moved the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, to the job. The move comes as a major battle is underway for the town of Solodar in eastern Ukraine. Ukrainian forces claim that Russia is close to capturing the town. The, that cl- those claims by Russia are false. But as CNN's Ben Wiedemann reports for us now live from the front lines, Ukraine is certainly struggling in this fight. Medics load a wounded soldier onto an ambulance. Another casualty from the embattled town of Solidar. It varies depending on the number of casualties on the front lines. Russian forces, mostly troops from the Wagner Group, the private military company, claim to have control of the entire Solidar territory. The battle for Solidar may be in its final stages, and it doesn't appear to be going well for the Ukrainians. And if indeed the Russians do emerge victorious, the villages around it may be the next to fall. 
Ukraine's helicopters still flying sorties, its forces aren't giving ground easily. One soldier says it's difficult, but we're hanging in there. Despite the fighting, Ira is staying put with her pigs and cows in her home in a nearby village. We won't leave, she says. You can only die once. I will not abandon my house. Her 81-year-old mother, Ludmila, has lived here for more than 40 years. We had a good life here, she says. Sergei Goshko heads the Solidar military administration. I'm delivering aid, he says, and reminding people they need to evacuate before it's too late. Svitlana says she'll heed his call. Everyone is tired, she tells me. We can't take it any longer. As Solidar burns, there is little time to waste. And uh, the picture that is emerging from inside Solidar is one of a Ukrainian army desperately struggling to keep its positions. Now, as we were leaving that area, we did see Ukrainian forces, rather Ukrainian reinforcements coming in, but it wasn't clear if they were preparing for a counterattack or to cover a retreat. Jake? All right, Ben Wiedemann in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Coming up... The new warning about TikTok, this time it's not just your data at risk that's cause for alarm. Parents, you're going to want to listen up on this one. Stay with us. This just in, the White House physician says that surgery today revealed a lesion on the face of First Lady Jill Biden. They say it was basal cell sarcoma. Uh, Dr. Kevin O'Connor issued a letter moments ago saying the procedure lasted several hours today. And also revealed an area of concern on the left side of the First Lady's chest, um, which that uh, lesion was removed and confirmed to be cancerous. Dr. O'Connor says the First Lady is experiencing facial swelling and bruising, but is in good spirits. In our tech lead, uh, the U.S. government says TikTok, the popular social media app that comes from China, is a national security threat because the Chinese government may be able to access users' data TikTok denies that, but the app has been banned from federal workers' devices. Now, however, some psychologists are warning about another problem, TikTok's impact on young people's mental health. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich looked into why they are concerned. My money don't jiggle, jiggle. It falls. I'd like to see you wiggle, wiggle. In just five years, TikTok has amassed more than one billion global users. Cutting up all the veggies that are going to go into the broth. Eyeballs around the world glued to the endless content and viral videos. How long do you think you spend on TikTok every day? Uh, two to three hours. Two to three hours? Three to four hours. But last month, the U.S. government, along with more than a dozen states, banned TikTok on most federal devices, citing national security concerns over its Chinese parent company and the possibility it could pressure TikTok to hand over personal data. There is no public evidence the Chinese government has done that, but there is evidence of another risk, social media's impact on mental health, particularly among Gen Z. Teen depression started to rise after 2012. So did self-harm and suicide. 
Dr. Jean Twangy says as smartphones and social media grew, so did the rate of depression among teens, nearly doubling between 2004 and 2019. By that year, one in four U.S. teen girls had experienced clinical depression, according to Twangy. So the pro-anorexia videos, their videos that instruct people on, on, on how to cut themselves. Because what the algorithm is trying to do is get people to use the app for longer because that's how the company makes more money. TikTok in a statement said, quote, one of our most important commitments is supporting the safety and well-being of teens, and we recognize this work is never finished. We continue to focus on robust safety protections for our community while also empowering parents with additional controls for their teens' account through TikTok family pairing. Users of TikTok spent an average of an hour and a half a day on the app last year, more than any other social platform. What is it that keeps you scrolling, even if you know maybe you've spent one, two hours on it? Once you watch the one video, you're like, well, time to watch another. So you just keep doing it. It's like a cycle. You don't realize that the time is passing. That's exactly what happened to Jerome Yankee. I'd definitely done all-nighters on TikTok before. I had just been scrolling until the sun came up. He says he lost sleep. His grades suffered. He lost touch with his friends. He lost his sense of self. In 2021, he deleted the app. Getting disappointed by my own life is never something I want to be doing, especially when I have the power to change it. But I just wasn't because I was spending hours on this app. We have like a lot of cool resources that we give to our audience for free. Including but Hannah Williams proves the positive side of TikTok, allowing her to create a business, Salary Transparent Street, providing paid transparency to her nearly one million followers. I think TikTok definitely helped just because they have such audience reach potential. She hopes TikTok's algorithm works in her favor. Helping people in marginalized communities is the only reason I am doing this. It's my entire mission. And there are so many other people around the world that have launched entire careers off of TikTok, making money for them and their families. And there are studies that show the positive sides of social media. According to Pew Research, one in 10 teens report that they feel more connected to friends on social media. And about 70 percent, Jake, of teens say that they feel like they're more creative when they're on social media. Jake. Uh, Vanessa, the, the Chinese version of, of TikTok has built in time limits uh, for Chinese kids. Uh, the American version does not. Um, is TikTok going to do anything to help teens cut back on screen time here in the U.S.? Exactly. There's no natural shutoff of the app here in the United States. However, TikTok does say that they have screen time management tools. They're also testing a sleep feature where you can set the app to tell you when it's time to turn off and go to bed. But of course, Jake, you know that for you section very well. It's the algorithm is so smart that it really gives teens and everyone exactly what they want to see. And that is what is so time consuming about this app, leading to lack of sleep, lack of interaction with friends. And that's ultimately what cycles into depression. Jake. Yeah, the Chinese version doesn't have these problems because it encourages positive things as opposed to what we get here in the U.S. Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thank you so much. Coming up next, the nationwide ground stop not seen since 9-11. What caused today's massive airline system meltdown and could it happen again? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, will freshman Republican Congressman George Santos be able to escape his web of lies? A growing number of his fellow Republicans are now calling for his resignation. Plus, 
Students returned to the classroom at the University of Idaho for the first time since the arrest of a suspect in those horrific murders of four students. This, as the accused mass murderer, is set to return to court. And leading this hour, flights throughout the United States are slowly getting back on schedule after an FAA system outrage outage early this morning forced every plane in the U.S. to be grounded for 90 minutes and causing massive delays and cancellations all day. The outage was related to the Notice to Air Mission System, which sends pilots pre-flight safety notices. CNN's aviation correspondent Pete Montine takes a deeper look now at the second major air travel mess in just weeks that has resulted in at least 9,000 flight delays and 2,700 cancellations in the United States. The number of flight delays are still climbing, along with major outrage over how air travel came to a near unprecedented halt. The FAA did just uh, post that no U.S. departures will happen today until 9 a.m. Wednesday morning, airports across the country stood still as the Federal Aviation Administration implemented a nationwide ground stop, something not seen since the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Well, it's an interesting day. Everybody except medevac and military stopped. I'd shut them down, say some gas, if I were you. I don't know how long this is going to go on for. The FAA failure started overnight in a computer system that issues critical safety alerts for pilots, known as Notices to Air Missions, or NOTAMs. The bulletins provide the latest information about airports and airspace. It's uh, absolutely essential, and the system can be very fragile. The effect? Cascading cancellations and delays in the thousands. First it was a 20-minute delay. Then it turned into an hour delay. Anger is stretching from concourses to Capitol Hill. Ted Cruz, the top Senate Republican overseeing transportation, is calling the failure completely unacceptable. Congressman Rick Larson is the top Democrat on the House Transportation Committee. We're going to need some answers, uh, and I'm sure they will get answers out of the DOT, uh, and uh, they'll share those with Congress so we can move forward on figuring out what to do next. Critics insist FAA systems are outdated and underfunded. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who has come down hard on airlines, says he's directed an agency after-action process to determine root causes and recommend next steps. My primary interest, now that we've gotten through the immediate disruptions of the morning, is understanding exactly how this was possible and exactly what steps are needed to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Cancellations continue to go up nationwide. Here at Reagan National Airport, about half of all flights today have been either canceled or delayed, Jake. An FAA source tells us that the FAA first knew that this was a problem yesterday afternoon, tried to reboot that critical NOTAM system early this morning, but that ultimately failed, causing that nationwide ground stop. There is some good news for passengers here, though. This happened after the holidays when air travel is relatively light. Also, all the major airlines are issuing travel waivers, meaning that you can change your flight completely free of charge, something the airlines are not required to do because this is something that was out of their control, Jake. All right, Pete Montine, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN analyst Mary Schiavo, a former um, Department of Transportation Inspector General. Uh, Mary, as you look at this nationwide ground stop this morning, the first since 9-11, 2001, what was your reaction? 
Well, my reaction was, and it's very unfortunate that computer glitches and computer problems have come to this, but I think probably more than that, I was worried because the NOTAM system is part of what's called the system-wide information management system. The nickname is SWIM, uh, sink or swim in the case of the FAA, and that system controls almost everything about your flight venture through the country, the dispatch, the air traffic control, uh, separations, aviation weather, and so NOTAMs are part of that system. And that system came under criticism as early as, oh, and before, in uh, 2011, my old office, the Office of Inspector General, said it was a program that wasn't being managed well, it was out of control, that no one at the FAA was really buying uh, you know, responsibility for it or taking control of it, and that the cost overruns and, and, you know, continual problems would just increase. And so the FAA was tasked to get this figured out because so much more than even the NOTAMs hangs on the system, and they were supposed to work it out. They've had update meetings with industry, et cetera, but clearly it isn't worked out yet, and it has greater implications for even more systems in the FAA. So, it sounds like you're saying this speaks to potentially more bigger issues facing the FAA than just today's failure if this has been more than a decade since people have been talking about this being a major issue that needs to be addressed. Yes, yes and because so many different applications of our national um, aviation system, national aerospace system, depend on it, as do foreign carriers. Foreign carriers can't come here without accessing the system and also, by the way, literally hundreds of users are allowed to interface with this system to run their airlines. So really, the miracle is it's it's amazing that it only took the NOTAM system down because so much depends on this computer architecture. And by the way, it's run by a whole host of different contractors, non-governmental contractors. And so the FAA is supposed to be coordinating them. So Congress has their job cut out for them. They very much do need some oversight on this program. But... They have to do follow-up. When the cameras, uh, you know, shut down and the reporters go home, the FAA tends to relax and not uh, push hard. Why couldn't air traffic control talk directly to pilots in real time about closed runways? Did they need to shut down the whole system? Unfortunately, they do. Now, in the old days, you know, decades ago when I learned to fly, that is exactly what you did when you needed your clearance, when you needed the weather, when you need the NOTAMs. And back then it was notice to air airmen, not notice to air missions. Um, you literally called up. You called up your flight service stations. You got an ATIS broadcast. You talked to the tower. But now the system is so complicated and so complex. And remember, a lot of these systems seamlessly interface electronically. So it may not even require a voice command to get this information relayed. And airlines around the world, if they're headed here, have to do it. And by the way, drones, uh, unmanned air systems use this system as well. So at this point, we have reached the point of computer complication where you simply can't do it by calling somebody up or radioing the tower. It's too complicated. And as we heard, CNN is now reporting that even the backup to the system, the backup experience problems, how out of date... Are these systems, is, uh, and is, are they in bad shape in, to a dangerous degree? Well, and it's also a matter of philosophy. So back, you know, years ago when we were developing NextGen, which was the Star Wars way to fly, and that's our, still our goal, so you could do everything seamlessly and electronically, there was supposed to originally be, it was designed to have three systems, one to be operating, one for computer maintenance, and then one for backup. So if something happened to your main system, 
system, you would get to the backup system and you could work on the interim system and they were all supposed to be time synced. That didn't really happen and it doesn't really happen now. But yes, what we need are more backups. But most importantly, is we need all of this code and all of these systems to work together because, you know, we fly on computers. We don't fly on airways anymore. All right, Mary Shiva, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Just into CNN. President Biden's legal team has found another batch of government documents, ones of interest to federal investigators at a separate location from the office where the first 10 classified documents were found. NBC News reports some of these documents are classified. Let's get straight to CNN. Senior Justice Correspondent Evan Perez. Evan, what else do we know about these records, these new ones? Well, Jake, what we know, and Phil Mattingly is being told by a source that uh, the legal team found these uh, these additional documents, the second batch of documents, in a subsequent search after they fir- found the first uh, ten, and that in 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 finding these documents, they decided that these were going to be of interest to the federal officials that have been doing uh, the review of this matter. Now, uh, the, as you pointed out, NBC is saying that uh, some of these documents are classified. That would, of course, make sense. That you know, the federal uh, officials that have been doing this review, that's what they fo- they've been focused on is the classified uh, documents and how they ended up at these locations. Now, Jake, the question that now arises is, you know, why are we learning about this? Not only uh, just now, right? But the idea that these these searches occurred after the initial search that found those initial batches uh, in November. Why is it that the White House has been telling us only about the first batch uh, over the last few days? It appears that this is a new development that uh, they weren't willing to uh, to to disclose until now. Jake. Evan Perez, thank you so much. He can run, but can he hide? Republican Congressman George Santos may not be able to escape the fallout from his web of lies. That's next. Then, after months of protests, the Iranian regime will start issuing even harsher sentences, including weeks in prison to women who do not cover their hair. Why this is about so much more than just a hijab. Stay with us. The list of Republicans calling for Republican Congressman George Santos of New York to resign is growing. It does not include House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Today, the freshman from New York was asked to step down by at least two sitting Republican members of Congress, as well as members of Nassau County's Republican Party, over what the local chairman of the party calls a litany of, quote, deceit, lies, and fabrication, unquote. Just to remind you of just a small sampling of some of those, Santos Claimed he went to the Horace Mann School in the Bronx. CNN's K-File found there's no evidence of him attending that school. Santos said he attended Baruch College and NYU. Both schools say he was never enrolled there. He claimed he worked at Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. No record of his employment there, according to the New York Times. He said 9-11, quote, claimed his mother's life. She died in 2016. He said his mom fled socialism in Europe. Genealogical records show she lived in Brazil. Santos said his grandparents survived the Holocaust. CNN found There's no evidence of that. Santos claimed he had four employees who died, were killed in the tragic Pulse nightclub shooting. The New York Times found no records of any victim ever working for Santos. He said he had a pet charity that saved 2,500 dogs and cats. The IRS has no record of that charity. He claimed to be Jewish. He is not. And after he was discovered, he said all he meant was that he was Jew-ish. In a separate matter, officials in Brazil are pursuing fraud charges against Santos for stealing a checkbook in 2008 which he admitted to, according to documents obtained by CNN. Finally, it's not clear where any of his money comes from. Perhaps most worrisome for House Republicans, he is also standing accused of campaign finance violations. So, 
Let's bring in CNN's Eva McKenna. Uh, Eva, George Santos almost immediately responded to calls for his resignation by saying, no, he will not resign. W- what are Republican leaders saying? Well, Jake, George Santos appears to have an ally in House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy will still give Santos low-tier committee assignments. The Republican leader says the voters made their choice. He tried to make an equivalency to other lawmakers that have lied about their backgrounds and noted Santos has not been charged with anything. So the newly minted Speaker of the House with his slim majority appears comfortable with Santos. Santos won't get his preferred choice of being on the Financial Services Committee, but he'll still get an assignment. The Republicans out on Long Island, though, they're singing a much different tune. The Nassau County GOP, they want him gone. And two New York Republicans, at least two in Congress, they're calling for Santos to step aside as well. This all comes as Washington watchdog groups. They suggest Santos may have illegally used campaign funds to pay personal expenses and concealed the true source of more than $700,000. Those groups have asked a number of federal entities to investigate. The big question now, I think, is does McCarthy continue to stand by Santos or does the focus on Santos become too much of a distraction from what House Republicans are trying to achieve? And Jake, I would add from being in the district just a few weeks ago, you know, McCarthy is saying, well, the voters decided. Well, they decided on the information that they had at the time. When you speak to many people, they are really disgusted in the district and say that they wish that they knew all that they know now. Jamie McCann, thank you so much. Let's discuss. First of all, let me just say, I'm getting a real untalented Mr. Ripley vibe from this guy. Like, it's really (laughs) weird and creepy and potentially sociopathic and also just, like, not well done. Um, Are you surprised that McCarthy, Scalise, Stefanik, all the Republican leaders are not wading into this at all? Not at all. Jake, they need his vote. They need his seat. End of story. And the other thing I'd mention, in this post-Trump Republican Party or Trump's Republican Party, there's no such thing as shame anymore. So forget about it. You're caught lying. You're caught stealing. You just fight and accuse the other guy. That's what they'll do. Yeah, and I saw, and I saw this morning um, Adam Kinzinger, the former Republican congressman from your home state of Illinois, who's now a CNN contributor, he's, he's read Resign, and, and Santos like tweeted back at him, like, go on CNN and cry about it or something yeah. like that. Really defiant. I mean, and it's, like, <laughs> it's so strange. I mean, he thinks this is a joke. He thinks that he is literally playing a theater or something in Congress when the reality is, to what Eva was saying, voters actually voted for him to do something, although they voted on the lies that he you know, campaigned on. And so it's really interesting to see you know, Republicans like McCarthy say that they're going to keep him because it's all about power for them. It's literally to keep that seat so that Democrats, this is a seat that Democrats could win should he resign and go into a special election. What do you make of the criticisms or the, or the, the counter criticism that there, she's not the only one in Congress that has misrepresented himself to a degree or not? I mean, there's a scale issue here, though, right? I mean, <laughs> it took you so long to read all of the, uh, you know, the I don't even think that was the whole list. Yeah, yeah that no. we barely have any time left to talk in the panel. So. Yes. I mean, there's, you know, politicians often, there are misrepresentations or exaggerations, but this is next level in terms of just the amount of stuff that he's saying. And it's it's right, this is a swing district. And so this is a real concern for Republicans up there. You know, this was previously held by a Democrat. Joe Biden easily won this district in 2020. And so uh, Democrats certainly will be trying to take this back. And um, James Carville, we should point out, the Democratic strategist, his argument is basically, 
the Democrats should just like keep him there. It's a great opportunity for Democrats to use him as a political pinata, in his words. And I imagine he's thinking something along the lines of Democrats can say, the party of George Santos continues to lie, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, for them, I, I, don't, I don't think that analysis is off from Mr. Carville. And the reality is um, the most likely way he's going to be leaving Congress in the post, you know, after the era of Donald Trump where seemingly anything goes is if the voters get another say and are mm-hmm. able to say, see you later, which, you know, for Democrats, I mean, he, he's the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, how would you define Absolutely. Jewish exactly, Jake, as someone who is it was, actually Jewish? It was, it was a special kind of genius, I think. Like, it's the definition of chutzpah. There you go. Yeah. But, Jake, but look, I, hold on one second, just yeah. one more point. The thing that I think is going to be the most important here is the money, because yeah. right. that really is the rest of it. We can laugh about it. It sounds ridiculous. But where did he get this money that he cannot account for? Absolutely. Like, that's potentially criminal, and that's, I think, where he faces real problems. There is a scale to politicians' line, but how can a party whose leader is Donald Trump go after George Santos or any other politician for lying? How can they do that? Well, I mean... We've I, never yeah. had I think that's a, why they're not. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. It's, it's become de rigueur, norm, quite that. frankly. So let's, let's turn to uh, all the big decisions made by House Republicans in terms of who gets committee assignments and the chairmanship. First of all, uh, Casey, I want to point out Business Insider has this headline, and we don't have to spend the whole time talking about this, but noticing <laughs> that the House of Representatives <laughs> will have more guys named Mike chairing committees than women chairing committees. Uh, there are 33 Republican women, 91 Democratic women. So kind of there is a the, the House uh, Republicans are talking a lot about the diversity that they have in their ranks, not necessarily in their chairman. Uh-huh. Yes. Well, and that's that's the wrinkle. Right. I mean, they have talked a lot about it. Kevin McCarthy has talked a lot about it. And he, you know, to his credit, there are some successes he can point to where he has recruited um, some women, some diverse candidates that the Republican Party previously had not seen. But as any woman who's worked uh, in you know, the high levels of politics or corporations knows, the problem is uh, that top slot, that getting that CEO job, getting to be the person that makes the decisions. And so it's pretty telling uh, that this is what the slate of committee chairs looks like because they're the ones that really hold the power. So there's this new uh, oversight and um, accountability is the name of the committee chairman, uh, James Comer. He's requesting the Treasury Department turnover information about the Biden family's financial transactions. We're talking about Hunter Biden. We're talking about Jimmy Biden, who's the president's brother and a businessman. Uh, the White House is calling it a political stunt. What do you think? They've got to be careful. We know Republicans are going to investigate everything under the sun when it comes to Democrats these next two years. But if they go after the president's family, Hunter Biden and the rest, I just think that's going to just bounce back and bite them in the butt because voters don't want to see that. Well, and voters elected this yeah. Congress to actually do something about the economy, not the sham political stunt investigations. And if we're talking about a presidential family, I mean, these Republicans didn't want Democrats to investigate Ivanka Trump, who actually was a member of the administration, and while Hunter Biden and President Biden's brother are private citizens. And that's what the administration really is banking on and trying to emphasize, is this idea that the president's out there, he's doing events with Mitch McConnell, he's out out there visiting the border, that he's doing work, He's trying to work across the aisle and that they're focused on investigations and, and extremism. The risk, too, is that it could backfire politically on them in a way that some of the other, I mean, their experience with this was primarily driven by Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, the Clinton family, all those things. Um, and they feel like some of that was successful. The Biden story is a different story and the Hunter Biden story is a different story. 
Um, and I think that, that it's been shown that the president is able to generate sympathy around his family um, in a way that is unique to him as a politician and him as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that the message that midterm voters sent was that we didn't, they didn't send us a red wave. They sent the House is, is as divided as it was last time. It's just very slightly in the other set of hands. Um, and I think if Republicans go too far, there's a risk there. Well, there is uh, an opportunity for real oversight. We heard Mary Schiavo talking about how there, there needs to be yes. oversight of the FAA and, you know, what happened today. But we don't hear Republicans jumping and talking about we need to solve this problem. This has been decades in the making. The FAA is broken, blah, blah, blah. Because that's governance, not politics. Well, it's, I mean, they, I'm, say, I'm suggesting maybe it would be a good idea. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a good idea for our friend, Mr. Mr. Comer. Thanks to our panel, uh, one and all. House Republicans move forward with their agenda. Not everyone's on the same page. Our next guest is the only Republican who voted no on the House Rules Package. Stay with us. And topping our politics lead, Texas Republican Congressman Pat Fallon has filed articles of impeachment against the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. This after a wave of fresh Republican criticism following President Biden's rather sanitized border visit. Not every Republican is on board with impeaching Mayorkas. Joining us now, Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez. Congressman, good to see you. Thanks for being here. So today you said that you oppose the impeachment of Mayorkas because the process is too drawn out and people in your district need help right now. Um, What is the best way, you think, to actually address this crisis on the border? Because you and I have talked about this before. It seems to me with the Democratic Senate and and White House, there is a big comprehensive immigration bill to be done that includes a huge uh, border security part uh, component. Yeah, look, impeachment is in case of emergency break glass. And it seems as if we have taken that to a, a common thing. It shouldn't be a common thing. Not uh, Look, the DHS Secretary Mayorga has made a lot of mistakes, and there's clearly a lot of people upset. My approach has not been to... To, to shun them, per se, but to go to the administration and work with them. And also, impeachment, impeachment uh, uh, hearings are going to take place. Where that takes us, I don't know where it is, but that, that's going to be, who knows how many months that's going to be. Uh, I look at the president's visit to, uh, to the border, and this, look, the president could have had a layup. They could have had me there. I, I didn't ask to be on Air Force One. All I wanted to do was have a policy discussion. When I hosted him in Uvalde, I didn't embarrass him. It's the president of the United States. I want to have a more clear uh, discussion but if they can't make layups, how are they going to make three-pointers? And if they don't want to meet with me, what Republicans are they going to meet with? Right. And you, you've called the president's trip to the border a partisan trip. Um, a White House official responded to your complaint saying um, that they were not able to accommodate all requests from Democrats and from Republicans and Democrats alike due to due to space uh, constraints. What's your response to that? Yeah, like once again, I didn't ask to be on the plane. I would have met him at the tarmac. I would have met him any any of these facilities. Uh, you know, five minutes aside, and what, what really upset me was when I met with him in Uvalde, I specifically asked the president, Mr. President, now's not the time or place, but I'd like to meet with you on the border, whether at the border or at the, uh, the White House. He agreed to that. He called over one of his aides and said, hey, I want to get Tony in the White House for us to have a discussion. Seven months later, nothing. So it tells me it's very frustrating, but I'm not going to give up. I'm a retired master chief. You go over, under, or through, you have to find solutions not rhetoric. So uh, that, that's what I'm focused on. Is there a comprehensive immigration reform bill that does something about the dreamers and does something about the more humanitarian aspects of this that maybe Democrats are pushing for that also adds to border security that you want and you're hearing from your constituent? But, but I guess my question is, there's no will for it that I can see. 
I think it starts, Jake, I think it starts with having a dialogue. Who is willing to sit down and have a discussion? To me, my, my energy is solely focused on border security. If, if I can't have a conversation on that, how can we move to the more contentious topics? I will tell you, I had a conversation with Senator Cornyn today. I was really pleased to see the senators, the Senate come together in a bipartisan manner and do this border trip. I think that's, that's a promising move. Those are kind of things that we need to have a, a discussion. Hey, what are the parameters? To me, it starts with border security. But if nobody will sit down with me, how can we get to step two, three, and four if we can't get off uh, the starting blocks? I also want to ask you, because you were the only Republican to vote no on the new House rules package, uh, you cited threats to the defense budget as a result of not what's in the rules package, I don't think, but these side deals, side agreements that uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, has made. Um, Republicans traditionally um, were more on your page when it came to the defense budget, but they don't seem to be bothered by it now. What's going on? Jake, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. I mean, you know, like you mentioned, historically, Republicans were hawkish on defense. And, and, and it seems that it has changed. I spent 20 years in the military. I don't believe in having cuts without reforms. I'm happy to have the, the conversation, but let's talk about what was going to reforms in order, uh, defense reforms, in order to get to it. If you're just going to cut without reforms, all you're doing is cutting off your nose in spite of your face, and it makes us weaker. We also have to protect our allies, like Ukraine, like Taiwan, and invest more in, in Central and South America. The president of Mexico basically made a point to go, I never see you. The United States doesn't play a role here. Why are you having this discussion now? These are some of the things I think the American uh, uh, defense should focus on. Any blowback from House leadership for voting no on the rules package? No, I, I was very clear with leadership early on. And when you look at it, this wasn't an anti-leadership vote. It was really a pro-leadership vote. Another reason why I voted no was I didn't want to see the circus that was last week play out month after month. I, we have we have real problems in this country. You know, the borders, one immigration reforms, another health care, uh, education. I mean, the list goes on and on. How do we come together and solve this? I don't want to see, you know, as much uh, uh, that C-SPAN got. I mean, I don't want people watching C-SPAN. I want I want people watching uh, the, the how the uh, the Congress deliver real results for everybody. And, and, and just the last question I have is Congresswoman Nancy Mace, uh, Republican of South Carolina. She's been pretty angry outspoken, saying she wants to know what compromises, what deals uh, McCarthy made. And it's, I, I mean, this is my, my words, not hers, but it's, it's the people's house, not Kevin McCarthy's house. Yeah. Do you want to see that list? You know what, Jake, you have a limited amount of energy. My focus is on forward. Like, how do we secure the border? And, and all, I'm all in on that. How do we talk about immigration reform? How do we school safety? I mean, these are things that are important to the American public. Uh, what I will say, though, in the 118th Congress, there is real power in rank and file members. I mean, the, the, the margins are so small, five members of Congress can, can, can shape things. So I'm focused on making sure that we have meaningful legislation, not get stuck into what was given, what was not given, what are these promises. I mean, that's all D.C. politics stuff. Uh, I have no interest in that. I want to, I want to, I, I serve, I came to Washington to serve for the district, serve for the country. All right, Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas, thank you so much. Always good to see you, sir. Thanks, Jake. Brazil is bracing for new protests from Bolsonaro supporters tonight as former Vice President Mike Pence makes an important connection. Stay with us. We're back with our world lead. Security forces in Brazil are on alert right now as supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro call for more protests this evening. This follows Sunday's attack by pro-Bolsonaro groups on Brazil's National Congress, on its presidential palace, and on its Supreme Court. Those riots have drawn comparisons to the January 6, 2021 attack 
on the U.S. Capitol, a comparison seemingly supported by former Vice President Mike Pence in an interview with CBS. It is evidence that what happens in the United States has repercussions around the world. I, I have no doubt that that tragic day in January of 2021 in this country played some role in sowing uh, the seeds of what's taking place in Brazil. Let's bring in CNN's uh, Issa Suarez in the Brazilian capital. Issa, let's start with the influence January 6th may have had on these riots in Brazil. Last year, you documented the role some of Donald Trump's key allies played in creating division among the people of Brazil. Yeah. Indeed, and we've been tracking that far-right influence in Brazil for your show, in fact, since early 2021, Jake. At that point, if you remember, Jair Bolsonaro was doing very badly in terms of poll numbers. He was facing calls for impeachment following his handling of the coronavirus pandemic at home, uh, um, which he's being investigated for. And he needed help with elections around the corner, not just help from his friends in the United States, but also inspiration. So what we saw at the time, we saw the CPAC, the Conservative Conference, come here to Brazil. We saw Donald Trump Jr. address that very conference. We also saw, Jake, Eduardo Bolsonaro Jr., that's Jay Bolsonaro's son, go to the U.S., take part uh, in Mike Lindell's conference, cybersecurity conference, alongside Steve Bannon, where they basically spewed uh, conspiracy theories. That rhetoric, those lies, those conspiracy theories has very much been part of the Bolsonaro uh, playbook, taking, obviously, from Donald Trump. He is called the Trump of the tropics, and he has really kept that up for much of, of his time here in office. And that has been felt time and time again, particularly, Jake, in the social media aspect here. And Issa, are there indications that Bolsonaro supporters have come out for a new round of nationwide protest today? Well, they were expecting to come out. We didn't have idea of numbers. They only announced it on social media. Uh, and what they were calling was take back the power. Uh, interpret that how you will. But if I just move to the side, I'll give you a sense. There are more police presence here, Jake, than there is actually protesters. And we are by the presidential palace. If I get, if I can just turn to the right here, if I get my cameraman here to turn to the right, you'll be able to see here from Darren's pointing at there. That's the presidential palace. You know, just over a week ago, we saw them storming the capital. Today, we've got barracks being put in place. We've got police pretty much along all this avenue because what the president has done, he's put a new head of security in place here in Brasilia, taking control of Brasilia, of the security, because the gentleman, the governor that was in charge, he's actually been moved aside. And the man who was responding to him on national security efforts, he wasn't here, he wasn't in the country. In fact, he was on holiday in the United States. Supreme Court has put uh, an arrest warrant for him, Jake. And he says he'll be traveling back to Brazil. All right, Issa Suarez in Brasilia, Brazil for us. Thank you so much. Also in our world lead, the Iranian regime announced it will now issue harsher punishments for women who violate the mandatory hijab law. Now, instead of being picked up by Iran's so-called morality police and then taken to so-called re-education centers, women who refuse to cover their heads in public, according to Islamic law, will be imprisoned for anywhere between 10 days and two months. Iranian courts have also been ordered to hand out harsher sentences that could include travel bans or being denied access to public services. This is all, of course, in response to the nationwide protests that have roiled Iran since September. That's when 22-year-old Masa Jina Amini 
died or was killed while in the custody of Iran's morality police for allegedly not covering her hair sufficiently. CNN's chief international anchor, Christiane Amapour, joins me now to talk about this. Christiane, these tougher sentences for the hijab law combined with the executions of protesters, it, it seems obviously that the regime is silencing critics. Are they being successful in doing so? Well, it seems so. If you look a lot on Twitter and the social media avenues where we've got most of the evidence of these demonstrations when they first started, you can see there's much less. Uh, You can see and listen and read what a lot of the Iran experts are saying because they watch it very, very closely. And they're basically saying that the regime has bet on a very harsh crackdown, has doubled down and has kept doubling down to the point where it's been uh, doing these, I mean, frankly, extrajudicial uh, executions. And that has been done with the absolute intention of warning and scaring people off the streets. And it appears to be working right now. Uh, We don't know whether these demonstrations and protests have ended or are they just going underground? Are they just going dormant? And will they keep uh, popping up in in the future? But it's been a very draconian response and it's had this reaction. Christian, your father is Iranian. You spent your early childhood in Tehran. I, I think to understand what's going on right now, it's important Um, to understand when and why it became compulsory for women to wear the hijab. Tell us about that. Well, indeed, yes. I mean, you know, I lived and grew up there, so I sort of went through all the iterations of of mandatory hijab, and chador is the big thing, the whole full body-length cloak. But I would just say that, like many, even of the Abrahamic faiths, whether Christian, Jewish, or Muslim, when it began in in biblical and, 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 and Torah times, the, the 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 cloak, the headgear, was enforced on women in all these religions. But fast forward to the modern times, and you see that in Iran, in the early 1900s, the Shah of Iran at the time, he tried to take the chador off the women. He tried to liberate women to an extent by making the chador the, the opposite of mandatory, mandatory removal of it. You know, not a lot of women like that. The, the very conservative, the very traditional women kept wearing the chador, and that was fine. But fast forward to 1978-79 during the revolution, the Islamic revolution, and you had middle-class educated women donning a chador that they never would wear as a political symbol to support what they believed would be Khomeini's democratic revolution. Very soon they found out that it wasn't. They went into the streets again when he came back in 1979 against the Chador. And then the Islamic Republic, as it was then, cracked down and made the Chador an emblem of its very existence. So it's, you know, this this control of women's bodies, the control of what women wear is emblematic of their rule and of, of many such rules in the world. I mean, look at Afghanistan next door, for instance. Yeah, and, and obviously, as you know, this is about so much more than just the hijab or the chador. We've been hearing protesters chanting death to the dictator, but it does seem like the hijab or the chador is a catalyst for protesting the regime in this instance. Well, absolutely, and that's because Masa Amini died, was killed in the custody of police because they deemed how she wore her, her hijab, the headscarf, not you know strict enough. So she was, according to all the eyewitnesses and reports, she was roughed up and then, then died. 
And that's why this particular uh, chador or hijab became the symbol of this particular um, protest and this particular movement. But the regime has cracked down to such an extent that, uh, that it has had a chilling effect. And we saw the very same thing. And I was there in Iran at the time during 2009, the so-called Green Revolution. That was about something else. It was about the protesters against what they believed was a stolen election. And they were, they were protesting that. But it was also met with a very harsh response and it quickly petered out. That was in 2009. Yeah, although it was just in 2022 that the president of Iran in New York City tried to force you to put on a hijab and, yeah. and you said, no, thank you, sir. And he, he for, wouldn't let you do the interview, which uh, is pretty outrageous. Christiana Amapour, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and insights as always. Thanks, Jake. Coming up, what life is like for students at the University of Idaho returning to the classroom for the first time since there was an arrest and those horrific murders of four students. Stay with us. In our national lead now, the arrest of a suspect in those horrific killings of four University of Idaho students over winter break has put some peace of mind back on campus where classes resumed today in Moscow, Idaho. While some students' fears have been alleviated, the university, of course, continues to mourn the victims. 20-year-old Ethan Chapin, 20-year-old Zana Kernodal, 21-year-old Madison Mogan, and 21-year-old Kaylee Goncalves. All of them found brutally stabbed to death in November, of course. CNN's Josh Campbell is in Moscow for us. Josh, has the campus returned to any, any sense of normalcy? Yeah, Jake, you know, today, as classes resumed here at the University of Idaho, students have been describing a mix of emotions since the brutal killing of four other classmates. Many students say they feel like their sense of security, their sense of community has been shattered. Some of them actually changing their behavior in public, now going out in groups, now being more aware of their surroundings. We're also hearing, Jake, from students, parents, and faculty here at the university that although they continue to grieve the loss of those four students, there is a palpable sense of relief here that the suspect in the case has been caught. We talked to a university official here described that even though the alleged suspect is off the streets, they continue to maintain a rigorous security posture here. Take a listen. We are actually keeping a heightened security team on campus. Um, you know, just we felt like it's necessary to, to keep that heightened level just so people feel comfortable. There's been a significant law enforcement presence here for the last two months uh, or since the incident. And we felt like just pulling that away immediately was would be kind of shocking. So no ongoing threat that they know of here, but police certainly doing their due diligence to care for the physical and mental well-being of the kids here, Jake. And what's next for the murder suspect, Brian Koberger? So Koberger will be in court again tomorrow for hearing. We hope to hear more about uh, how this prosecution will unfold. Of course, his attorney says that he believes that his client will be exonerated. But Koberger is facing very serious charges, including four counts of first-degree murder. It's worth pointing out that here in the state of Idaho, if he is convicted, the sentence shake could include up to the death penalty. All right, Josh Campbell in Moscow, Idaho. Thanks so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read them. If you ever miss an episode of, of The Lead, you know, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. All two hours, just sitting there like a delicious kumquat. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room right after this short break. I'll see you tomorrow.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.